I'm Hemant Mehta, and you're listening to the podcast for FriendlyAtheist.com. You can now listen to all of our episodes and see show notes at FriendlyAtheistPodcast.com. I am here with Jason Heap. Jason is the executive director of the United Coalition of Reason, which has put up a lot of billboards all across the country. Uh, And he's also a humanist chaplain who's done a lot of work in that area. We'll talk about that soon. So, Jason, thanks for being with me. I appreciate your time today. Sure. So let's talk about United Corps. How many states have you all put billboards up in at this point? It wouldn't be a... It wouldn't be easy to say about the states. I would actually say about the number of coalitions that we've... uh, How many coalitions have you formed now? At the moment, we've got nearly 80. 80 Uh, coalitions. And these are local humanist groups, atheist groups working together as a coalition to... What are their purposes? I mean, I I know what the purpose of the Chicago one is because I've worked with that one. But what do you see as the purpose of these coalitions? Well, when it first started in 2009 in Philadelphia, it it moved from that... um, idea of just being visibility, where to say, hello, I'm an atheist, I'm here, or I'm an agnostic or a skeptic or a free thinker, I'm here. But over time, though, since 2009, it's moved into 80 coalitions uh, across the country, and there's about two or three that are currently in the pipeline. Some of them are wanting to do more than just visibility. Uh, A lot of them are trying to become more politically active, where they realize that within their group, they're able to have more Uh, ability to push for sort of governmental issues that they find to be important. But at the same time, I also have a lot of other groups that are interested in social work. And so when they realize that they have the ability to combine forces with other like-minded people, or even sometimes reach into the theistic communities who have said, hey, you're the first time that I've seen someone who professes non-belief in a deity but you're out here today with me at the blood bank, or you're out here with me trying to collect uh, clothing for children, I thought you were immoral. Right. No, so you're destroying those stereotypes real quick. Oh, and I love that. I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a pleasant thing when I get an email from a coalition and they just say, you'll, you'll never believe this, we outnumbered the churches that, that showed <laughs> up today. And then on top of that, they've invited us to come into the church and say, tell us about your sense of ethics as to why you believe this particular way. So then all of a sudden it is moving from visibility to more of a, of, of a community cohesion to say, you know, let's actually have this conversation that we weren't having in the past when you just saw me as being an enemy or a right. It seems like a lot of these coalitions are doing all all the good things that a lot of these churches are doing, minus all the supernatural stuff. In a lot of ways, they're doing the charity work, they're doing the volunteer work, they're doing the community aspect of church as well. Oh, certainly. And <clears throat> there, there was one time I had uh, a person say to me, uh, we had this church that, that sent us a really nasty email and said, you know, we can't believe that you atheists have done X, Y, and Z. And how could you, how could you have done something like this? And they said to me, Jace, what do we say in response to them? And I said to them, why don't you tell them that, you know, the Bible says in the Christian New Testament, Jesus was supposedly said to somebody, anytime you do this to the least of these, you do to me. Well, there's a lot of least of these out there that uh, some of our theistic communities are overlooking. And if somebody doesn't do something about it, then who's going to actually reach out and provide some sort of social justice? And so in that way, the the non-theistic community was actually raising uh, social visibility of people that had just been overlooked by the local churches. And I found that very heartening. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. One of the things that I often hear about with the United Corps billboards, uh, the, what are some of the messages you guys have used? 
Oh, uh, I think the first one that came out was actually borrowed from Free Thought Action, and it said, uh, don't believe in a God, you're not alone. And then there's also been, don't believe in a God, join the club. And then there has been, godless, so are we. And that was, uh, that one was unveiled in Iowa. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I've, I've heard some combine harvester stories that have come out from that one. I've well, what's amazing is none of these are aggressive to me. None of them are antagonistic. They're just kind of saying, hey, we're just like you. And, and a lot of you agree with us. So don't forget that we're here too, as opposed to say something like American Atheists, which is very much like a, you know, it's a myth. You know, very much in your face. They are definitely trying to get media attention with them. But with the United Corps billboards, what I what I find interesting about them is these seem pretty innocuous. No one should really get offended by anyone saying, don't believe in a God? So do we, smiley face. You know what I mean? Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. That yeah, kind of and thing. yet... There have been, I guess, as much controversy about those billboards as any of the other ones that I've seen. I think even in Iowa, like the governor got involved trying to get them off of buses. I, I don't I don't know if that was United Corps or not, but it just harmless messages that get people worked up. Uh, have you seen any just crazy reactions to any of these? Well, I mean, <clears throat> probably the most vehement action we had from one particular person was on the, the television. And it was a lady who was just absolutely ranting about it and just saying, my God died so that you could have this right to have this billboard in a country that is Christian. And, <laughs> and of course, you get that and you think, OK, fine. You know, we can always ignore that one. Right. The one that still sticks in my mind was recently we had done um, a big purchase of billboards from the Gulf Coast region from Pensacola, Florida, out to Biloxi, Mississippi. And from one thing after another, it was stalled or delayed or whatever else. And it was not the billboard company's um, general management that was slowing it down, but it was actually the local area. And all that did they was... They were fighting back <clears throat> against it? They were fighting back against it because apparently from one of the local press, it had said that fundamentalist Christian groups got the billboard to come down early. Now, all that has done is it told me you know, people are giving into a, a political pressure. And when I've said to people that, you know, after the civil rights of the 60s and, and as it kind of played out through the 70s and 80s, probably one of the few remaining groups that are still in the crosshairs of a, of a certain cross-section of society are people that do not profess a belief in a deity. And that was, that was uh, unequivocal. We, we see them actually saying, yes, we were proud to have this thing taken down and we pressured a local you know, business. But this is also a local business that's generating revenue and tax money and something else that's also happy to run some fairly graphic abortion. Uh, um, There's definitely a double standard going on in some cases. Indeed. And so all we were actually saying to them was, look, we don't want to have a fuss. All we want is what's contractually obligated because, as you said, it's an innocuous message and it wasn't poking a finger in somebody's eye. No one was slating one religion over another or saying, you know, you need to deconvert. Why, why do you think people are, uh, some people are so up in arms about some of these billboards? Do you think they're just offended by atheists existing? Is it the fact that they're asserting themselves in their community? Because it's not like these billboards are saying, you know, we want Christians out of here where they might have a legit reason to push back. What is it that they're upset about, do you think? 
Oh, I, I would actually say that they don't like the idea of visibility. I, I, rec- I recommend um, looking at one Fox News uh, story. That no, thanks. Actually, <laughs> I know I have other things to do on the weekend as well, like rearranging my sock drawer. But, um, <laughs> yeah. but they actually did say one time, you know, the, I think it was Kimberly Guilfoyle. I, I don't know. We uh-huh. don't seem to find her outside of the U.S. But she was actually saying, you know, if these atheists don't like thus and so, get out leave and you just sort of think hold on wait a minute you know roger williams in the 1640s yeah. when writing the bloody tent of persecution saying yeah, get out to go back to your own country we live here exactly. like where are we going so it, it just seemed a bit you know banal that it would come to that extent of saying you don't even have a right to live here but there are some people that i don't know i, I do sympathize with them because i grew up in an evangelical family where we were told you know jesus says i am the way the truth and the life no one comes to God but through me. And if that's what has been ingrained in your mindset, anyone that does not fit that category, even if they can be another Christian, like a Roman Catholic or an evangelical Lutheran or Missouri Synod, if they say, but I disagree with that theology, great, you're going to hell too with everybody else. And that kind of (laughs) polarization, I've... I just don't sense that in other parts of the world that I've lived and worked. But I come back here in August and then, wang, (laughs) here it is again. And you think, come on, people, don't don't push me away from the discussion table just because I have a, a slight disagreement with you. Right, right. So what is your role now? You're the new executive director of United Coalition of Reason. What does that position entail for you? Well, a lot of that now is is changing the direction of what United Corps has um, is going to be doing. In the past, it used to be predominantly some media training on how to work with media when they come to your door and the billboards being erected and saying, "Look, we're you know we're non-believers and we're here." Ta-da! Okay, well that's <laughs> that's phenomenal. We can right. deal with that one. But what we've also begun to discover now is that because the United Corps has grown to nearly seven hundred cooperating groups, bearing in mind it was one core of five, right. five groups, and now it's 80 and nearly 700, these folks are saying, all right, now that we're established, how can we increase what we're doing? We're not interested in visibility. Right. You're not going to be putting up more billboards in all of these cities, really. You're uh, trying to take the coalitions that are already there and do more with them. That's correct. I mean, we do have some cores that are in the process of building, and, yeah. and we're going to you know, repeat the same sort of thing with some other kind of visibility uh, campaign. But what we're interested in doing is trying to cultivate and nurture those that are already there. I mean, in Chicago, I know at the moment you have, um, for the uh, National Week of Action, you have a blood bank. And you have a blood bank card with your account on it, and you're encouraging people anywhere from uh, Chicagoland Atheist to Freedom From Religion Chapter to Chol Hadesh to say, let's all contribute to this because now we all benefit from the good work that we have done. There are other groups across this country that need to hear that kind of thing from you to say, well, that we're doing this. You should give this a try as well. There you go. Spread good ideas. And it is. It is about the same sort of thing that I was doing as a school headmaster. If you find best practice, you then share that with other people. So um, it's called a professional learning communities. You'll find the Dufour family that wrote loads of this stuff on their stuff. Well, there it is. So if you've got an idea that's working, we could probably share that with, say, Tulsa, Oklahoma. And they would say, well, we'll adapt that a little bit. But thank you very much much Chicago for this general idea that you have given us that we can now roll out here. So let me go back, to, not to totally change the subject, because your background is really fascinating. You've lived in a whole bunch of different places. You've been a headmaster of schools. So walk me through. You said you were raised in an evangelical household. Yes, that's correct. I mean, How did you leave that? Let's start there. 
Oh, um, it was when I was, I think I was in about middle of high school that I began to really question a few things because there had been a lot of tragedies within my, my life and the, the kind of answers that I usually got was sort of like, well, let's pray about this, but no, you know what the Bible says about this and, you know, and one day we will see them rise, but that wasn't really addressing my grief. Um, and, and those sort of answers didn't work for me. And then when I went to university, and I'll tell you where it was. I mean, Howard Payne University in Brownwood, Texas. This is yeah. a Baptist General Convention of Texas University. The instructors that I had in the theology and philosophy department were mostly reverend doctors, but they encouraged you to think for yourself and to come up with your own solution to what you studied, but to ground that in real scholarship. So that in itself began to make me rethink a lot of what kind of dogma I had grown up with. Did they know that that might happen if they asked you guys to question stuff? Well, they wanted you to because they, they introduced this concept to us of saying, you know, there's two kinds of faith. There's either the faith of an intellectual ascent that you say, hmm, yes, I agree with that because I like that. Or, you know, in, in the terms of like Martin Luther, he would say, you know, is faith something that you would invest your entirety into? Well, for me, it was predominantly the former. And I began to realize, no. So as I began to start to read philosophy more, the more I began to also study history and textual criticism, I just thought, no, I cannot maintain this, uh, this way of thinking from before. And then by the time I went off to, to graduate school at Bright Divinity School, um, who, by the way, still has not turned their back on me. I mean, Howard Payne doesn't want anything <laughs> to do with me, but Bright, Bright's cool. These guys were actually saying, you know, there are other faiths in this world that call God, God. And at that moment, I began to realize, well, in some ways, we make God out for who we think God should be. And so, therefore, God is in my image rather than the other way around. And studying alongside... We created God in our image. That's true. I mean, yeah. that's, uh, that's Adolf von Harnack. If you're looking at his book in the 1800s, Vastis Christentums, I can summarize it for you <laughs> in one thing. It is who we think he is. Uh -huh. uh, and so at Bright, they were talking about gender-inclusive language. It was talking about you know, not the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures. And Were you warned about going to the school before you went there? Are you kidding? They gave me a full tuition grant. <laughs> As in, like, uh, was were people at your college that what you're saying was very Christian? Uh, when you said I'm going to this place for my master's, did they say, "Well, you're gonna"? Because I, I think I've heard Bart Ehrman, the the New Testament scholar, uh, who's written about Jesus and things like that. He said, "You know, I went to a very religious school, but when I went to another religious school for graduate school, they're all like, oh, you 'Oh, you're gonna lose your faith now.' And then we went to pursue his doctorate at like Yale." That they were like, oh, we're going to lose your religion now. And it's like, no, you're, you're getting more educated in this stuff. <laughs> but if you're going to a school that's not as fundamentalist as the one before it, they're all like, oh, well, that's a mistake. Actually, no, they, because they already knew that I was having very agnostic beliefs. And, so it and seemed open. to fit you. Well, it did, because yeah. it was either Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth or someplace else nearby. And when Bright said, we want to give you this full tuition grant, come and learn from us, and then yeah. also put into it, because Bright valued diversity. We actually had the first openly gay, ordained Southern Baptist minister that taught the first ever gay and lesbian theology class. <laughs> and I ate that up and thought to myself, goodbye, all this other stuff that, yeah. that I had, the baggage. I just jettisoned it because I thought, this is nonsense. There's more to life than fighting over this. And so... 
as I began to go to Bright, the people back at Howard Payne said, you know, are you really enjoying it? Yes, we knew that you would because, <laughs> you know, there was always this sort of joke of uh, I was sinking deep in sin, having a real good time. <laughs> and that was the hymn that we, you know, that we joked about. And, yeah. uh, and they, th- but it was a place that I flourished because I realized, no, there's, there's much more to it than just what's right in front of you. What did you get your master's in? Well, which one? Uh, which, which ones do you have? Well, I have a Master of Divinity uh, from Bright, and I went off to the University of Oxford and did a Master's in History and Theology. So by that time, if there was any faith to be had, the more that you study <laughs> history, well, goodbye to that. Right. And did postgraduate um, uh, studies in religious education to be able to teach religion and philosophy and history and even psychology and sociology in the British state school system before uh, becoming a headmaster. And with each each one of these things, each system also... Uh, confirmed the idea of can you prove X, Y, and Z? If you can't, then you need to go back and either throw it out or rethink it and defend that. So, Did you enjoy your time as a headmaster? I'm not sure what the differences are between a headmaster at a British school and like a principal at a U.S. one. But uh, what do you did you enjoy that position when you were in it? Oh, thoroughly because I mean, no. First of all, I'm not a Dumbledore. Um, <laughs> I don't wear hats. I mean, my hair That's is spiky enough as it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but um, the headmaster in a British school has changed over the years, but it still requires you to do some sort of teaching and to be able again to share best practice for people to look at you and say, "Can you still do the job in the classroom?" Which I've discovered in the states, predominantly a building principal is. An administrator. They don't yeah. have much teaching load, if at all. Yeah, they don't. I, I know at the schools that I worked at or the schools I knew about, yeah, the principal never taught any classes. There you are. And most of my time, again, was in the Middle East that I was mm-hmm. teaching. And, and what were you doing there? Uh, as headmaster of a school. And uh, So this was what? Like uh, you were in which country? Uh, Kuwait. I've worked in Kuwait and Nigeria, uh, China, as well as uh, Qatar. And in each one of those, the, the culture, of course, you had to, to be accustomed to. Are you know, these all English language schools, or was it just whatever the nation happened to be their language? And well, they were bilingual. And, okay, you know, you've you've mentioned about the international baccalaureate. This was actually something called the International General Certificate of Secondary Education, which is the British version. Uh, the British version, and it's it's far more intense in some respects than the IB, and the IB has you know, its own different uh, learning outcomes. But working in the Middle East, face to face with politics and religion and fanaticism and <laughs> petrochemical wealth and you know corruption and all of these things that it was just surreal but at the same time it it forced me to think in terms of who are my community partners so that I have to be able to work at the same time with Christians and Sikhs and Muslims and Jews and Buddhists and Hindus and non-believers in order to achieve this particular goal. So if I was a headmaster who was a Christian, if I was a headmaster who was a non-believer, they didn't care. It was about, can you get this job done? Right. Now, have you learned anything from your teaching headmaster days that you apply to the United Corps groups? Very much so. Capacity building is, is you know, people first. That is, that is my maxim. Put people first. Put their interest ahead of mine. And again, this idea of of collective learning, collective work, where the the leader, whoever's um, facilitating this, sees themselves as being incomplete, to where I need people more than I would assume that they need me. And um, again, the whole idea of diplomacy is massive because uh, the cultures mix and, and sometimes clash in, in this region. I mean, just look at what's on the news now. Right. So it taught me a lot about how to relate to people 
at their particular level. So learning about their context is important. So how I would relate to you in Chicago is quite different to how I'd relate to somebody in, say, Chico, California, or Richmond, Virginia, or Houston, Texas. There's still an ultimate goal that we're trying to achieve, but I have to be able to respect and work with the the confines and the the difficulties as well as the the things that you just find so easy. So how did you get from doing the headmaster work to this billboard organization? Like wh- what led to that transition? How did you get connected with the the United Corps folks? Um it was after I applied to uh the Navy chaplaincy in the military and um had uh, determined not to take certain jobs uh, whilst I was waiting for that. I mean, I had been offered uh, other jobs as a, as a principal of, of schools. And so in the process of that, uh, the position came available with the United Coalition of Reason in August as its national coordinator. At the time, it was based at the American Humanist Association. But again, it still had good relations with many, many other non-theistic groups. Again, think about how to work with different people So gave you that opportunity still. There it is. So when we became completely independent in March, um, then, you know, there we have it. So it was just a matter of promoting to a different position. But also then the the job itself remained fairly similar with the exception of setting a new direction and then also providing the framework that will allow for that kind of uh, overlap and and mutual nurturing. So let me ask you about the chaplaincy stuff. You are a humanist chaplain. Um, There are others out there who hold that title as well. And the criticism I often hear is, you know, why are you bothering to be a chaplain? That is a religious thing. Uh, Why do we need humanist chaplains? Well, it's only a religious thing if if we look at, um, if we refuse to to accept the fact that language evolves just like people do. I mean, we don't, Uh, So what does a chaplain mean? Well, a chaplain traditionally had something to do with a person who was, you know, ministering to a chapel. But that was also under medieval Europe. And uh, historically, that uh, that time of mixing government and religion wasn't the finest hour of Europe. (laughs) And let's just uh, let's just summarize, you know, a five tome book on that one. But. Over time, then a chaplain also began to be seen as a religious minister who is attached to an institution for you know, certain roles and things like that. But also, I mean, because the Humanist Society, who is my endorser, they are recognized as having that kind of, for lack of better terms, ministerial role. Uh, because they endorse, they also you know check up on people to make sure that it is a good representation of humanistic uh, views and values. So, as a as a military chaplain or just as a chaplain in hospitals, I am there to make sure that I serve everybody equally. That I also inform other people who don't hold my particular view of how to best use you know my information and my knowledge and experience so that they can do the same thing with others. And then at the same time, there's, there's in, in, in institutional chaplaincy work, there's a phrase that I love, um, which is either perform it or provide it. Now, if it's something that I cannot do, so again, let's just say um, someone is dying and they want extreme unction and they want to see a priest. You can't do that. I can't do that. And also, you can't ask a Muslim to do that or you can't right. ask a Jew to do that because that's of that particular tradition. But... You then use the network back again to some of the transferable skills around uh, the education life. You find somebody who is able to do that. 
Likewise, I would hope that anybody else who sees themselves as a professional pastor or caregiver would say, hey, um, I'm dealing with somebody here who's an agnostic. They really don't want me to pray for them, but what can I do that would offer them authentic pastoral care and and relieve them and, and, and help them in this time of need? Because obviously what I'm trying to offer them isn't the case. I mean, again, doctors don't give people injections of medication that they know is not what they need. It should be about the same thing with, with uh, pastoral care and, and chaplaincy. So why is there so much resistance against this idea? Because in the military, we've seen it where they seem to say we don't want any non-religious chaplains. Um, what is what are they worried is going to happen? Do, do people think you're going to proselytize atheism uh, in that role? Or are they just saying, you know what, we like it the way it is? Like, I guess I don't understand the mindset of politicians and, and conservatives in general who say it's perfectly fine to have a Muslim chaplain or a Hindu chaplain, but they draw the line at a humanist one. What are they afraid of happening? I really don't know, because that's also the same question that I ask whenever <laughs> I speak with uh, chaplains. I mean, I know some chaplains who are Unitarian Universalists who also do not openly profess a belief in a deity. But they're in. They're fine. They can be a chaplain. And that's why I scratch my head and ask the same question. Is it a matter of being afraid of something? Is there something that they are trying to protect? Are they pressured by people? I really don't know. So I've, I have the same question. Yeah, it's just it's crazy to me that politicians work hard. I mean, I think last summer it happened where they passed bills to s- prevent humanist chaplains in the military or something. And it just it, it makes no sense to me why they're going out of their way to give people fewer options, especially when we're talking about like veterans. We're talking about people fighting right now. Like they're the ones who may need these humanist chaplains and they they don't get them. I do see issues like PTSD and uh, divorce rates with inside the military, and my heart goes out to people who are facing these sort of things. I also think uh, about the children of these families that that aren't being discussed. Whenever I read something in a in a in a report about here's a this PTSD level or here's this rate of this or suicide from veterans, and there's at the very end of all of this, I'm thinking, but there's no mention about their children or their family or yeah. their their neighbors or something. And so, again, I think to myself, what's the problem? Because you can also look to other armed forces that are allies with America who have, predom- I mean, who have prominent uh, members of their chaplaincy who are humanist. And they don't have a problem with it. Not at all. And yeah. yet, you know, again, I could understand if, if someone was to say, well, that's our enemy, and we don't <laughs> want to do something that our enemy is doing. These are actually right. friendly forces to... Uh, to our to our country, and right? There's just no good reason to say no, and yet there's so much resistance to the idea. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. So, where do you see? Uh, what do you hope happens with your chaplaincy skills, and what do you hope you can accomplish with United Corps? With United Corps, what I'm really what I'm really looking forward to is to see each individual group, um, not necessarily independent, but stronger than what they were before. I'm looking for them to have a new sense of direction, a new sense of pride in what they have already accomplished. Because if you look at some of the the social aspects, the money that that these uh, local coalitions have been raising to give to charity, to to find ways of, of assisting people that are disenfranchised, 
that needs to be at the focus of the communities to say, you know, there's, there's loads of bad news out there. There's loads of bad things that we don't want to, to think about. I would be looking for somebody, anybody who is doing the right thing that is, that is assisting a local community, that's making it a better place to live. That should be the kind of stuff that, that people just say, yeah, let's talk about that more. So thinking about that and the sort of positive social change that can be generated through the cores, that's really what I have the, the base of my hope for. And to use any kind of chaplain skills and the toolkit, as people would refer to it as, or administrative skills, education skills, life skills, anything, I'm freely giving my time as much as I can to support anybody who says we're trying to help make our community a better place to go. And that is, that's what makes me happy at the end of the yeah. day, is to hear somebody say, that made a difference. These people had a, an improvement in their life. I share in that somehow. And, I, and I, that gives me a lot of hope that uh, humans have the ability to create wondrous things yeah. when they put their mind to it. And do you think we're ever going to see a change with the military anytime soon? Well, in terms of accepting humanist chaplains? Or do you hope that happens? I, I would hope so. I would hope so, too. Um, cool. Well, if anyone wants to find out about United Core, the website is unitedcore.org. That's right, www.unitedcore.org. Or also, if you're looking to link up with other secular groups or non-belief groups in your area, we have uh, seculardirectory.org that allows you to check anywhere from 5 to 125 miles radius because at the end of the day, there's no reason for someone who says, I don't believe in a deity, to feel like they are alone. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Jason. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the podcast for FriendlyAtheist.com. If you like what you're hearing, please consider making a contribution at patreon.com slash hemant. That's he T. We appreciate your support.